The following lecture was delivered at the 14th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Washington, D.C., a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it, and we encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Shalom Patiel now presents his lecture, How to Overcome Fear and Instill Self-Confidence. How do we overcome insecurity and fear and build self-confidence? Anybody? <laughs> Friends, insecurity has many names, anxiety, worry, indecisiveness, distraction, confusion, lack of self-confidence, avoidance, fear. Humanity is plagued with this. Much of humanity is plagued with this. We Jews are no different. I think sometimes we tend to take the lion's share of a lot of these uh, wonderful traits. Guilt, Jewish guilt, we all heard of that. It's another form of anxiety and insecurity. You know the story of the Jewish guy who says, my mother, she was dismissed from the jury because she insisted that she was guilty. <laughs> Fear could paralyze us. One of the most profound statements, nothing to fear but fear alone. But what do you do with the fear? Everyone in life has times when they're plagued with some self-doubt. I won't be able to make the cut. I won't be able to achieve what I need to achieve. I just won't amount to what I need to amount to, whatever. I don't have what it takes to navigate life. And what's interesting is that this is very rampant today, perhaps more than in the past, in spite of the fact that we're living in the best time in history. They did a study recently, and everybody listens to the news, and it's a terrible time. Every five minutes, someone's getting blown up, and something terrible is happening. Part of it is because we know the news too quickly. If I can give you a piece of advice that I try to live by to avoid some unneeded anxiety is slow down the use of this baby right here. You know, I've recently come up with an idea that every time I want to pick it up and see what's going on, I ask myself why. You know, based on the importance of what's happening in my life, if I know that as a rabbi I need to attend to some things, that's okay. But otherwise, uh, you know, wait two hours before you check your phone and make sure that the world is still standing. But they did a study with a bunch of smart people with letters after their name, and they asked them to determine what would be the best time in human history to be alive. And they came back overwhelmingly right now. So as much as the world's a terrible place and it's going to pot, we're living in, in perhaps the greatest time in history in a lot of ways. And yet anxiety and security is uh, possibly at all time high. Whatever the reasons might be, you know, maybe we have too much time on our hands and things come too easy. But this is our reality, and today they're saying that insecurity has arguably become the norm. Listen to this, I did a study of, of people all over the world. What percentage of humanity do you think suffers from some level of low self-esteem? Real big, huge study international. Give me a number. 50, do I hear more? 85%. What a study. And then on top of that, world events that we find out about, top of that, our own service. You know, I'm a rabbi of a congregation, and some of my people are right in this room. And um, I often like to tell people, if you're breathing, there's going to be some service. It's just the way it is. If everything's perfect in your life, you're probably dead. So we're all carrying a peckle on top of the fact that we have our built-in anxiety as human beings. On top of that, we're Jews, hello. And then world news, and then our own legitimate peckle of tsaris. How do we find security, inner peace, and confidence? Dear friends, I submit to you today, the only way is through building a real relationship with God. Some of us are born with a little more sense of uh, self than others based on how much our mother loved us or did not or what have you. But ultimately, when it comes down to it, it's artificial. One curveball or one something tragic thing in the news or what have you, we're bent out of shape. How do we build an inner sense of confidence only through a relationship with God? Case in point, 12 step, six out of the 12 steps are built on a connection to a higher power. 12 steps have determined the lifeline out of the pit of self-doubt 
is only through a relationship with the one above, which makes our lives real. So if you're listening, you're thinking to yourself, all right, that's nice, a relationship with God. I got two problems with that. What's God? I'm not a philosopher. And number two, what's a relationship, especially if you're the guys in the room? The two kids are in kindergarten, and the little girl says to the little boy, let's play house. And the little boy says, what do you want me to do? And the little girl says, why don't you go ahead and communicate your feelings? To which he says, communicate my feelings? I have no idea what that means. She says, great, you'll be the husband. <laughs> so how do we do that? So some of you might have, might have seen in your Chabad houses the My Encounter series with the Rebbe, anybody? People who had special experiences with the Rebbe, yes? And they put it on recordings. It's very beautiful to watch. And one particular of my encounters is this fellow who grew up in a very religious home. At some point left it. He was exploring. He was a wild kid, what have you. He, he's uh, traveled the whole world, tried pretty much everything out there. And then at some point, he decided that he wasn't quite content, but he wasn't quite sure where he belongs. And he decided to visit the Rebbe unannounced. Not a Chabad kid, but he shows up at 770 and he says to the nearest Chabadnik, I'd like to meet the Rebbe. And obviously this kid has chutzpah. And the guy says, okay, go into the office, make an appointment. And in about three years, you get an appointment. He says, no, no, no. I need to see him now. I just landed in JFK and I'm leaving in an hour. So some nice guy told him, look, the Rebbe's going to be pulling up with his car. And walk up to him. He's not going to ignore you. And this guy said, sure, he got no problem. The Rebbe pulls up. He walks over to the Rebbe. You know, and he's all proud. As soon as the Rebbe looked at him with his piercing blue eyes, he throws up a little. And the Rebbe looked at him and said, you want to tell me something? And he said to the Rebbe in a perfect Yiddish, you know, this secular looking kid with all the piercings and trimmings, he said, Avu is God. Where is God? And the Rebbe took one look at him and said, Badir and Hartson, in your heart. And it was a little bit more of a conversation. And he said that was the turning point in his life. Today he has a beautiful family and he's living a religious life and quite successful life, etc. Badir and Hartzen means obviously we all have that Jewish soul, that Yiddish and Neshama, but also on a simple level, the breath of life. I suggest that when we're looking for a relationship with God, personalize it. Every breath we take 15,000 times a day, recognize how is that happening? Who's pushing that breath? You know, I had an experience with a hospital. It's up the road from our Chabad house on Long Island. It's called St. Francis Hospital, I like to call it St. Francis Jewish, because of the amount of Jewish doctors and Jewish money that's there. But it's known as the heart center, and it's, uh, so for a while, years ago, I had a weekly class with doctors, most of whom cardiologists. And you're talking to scientists, it's difficult to discuss God so easily. So one time I wanted to make the point, and I said to the doctors, I said, what moves the body? And they looked at me, Rabbi, come on, it's basic, the blood. Everybody knows the blood flows and moves the body. I said, great. What pushes the blood? He said, Rabbi, this is basic stuff. You didn't go to school? The heart. I understood. Then I had one more question. What moves the heart? Eight cardiologists around the table were stumped. It was like 30 seconds of silence until one brave doctor picked up his hand just like that. And all the doctors around the table picked up their hands. You know, as someone, as a rabbi, I've witnessed the transition from life to the other world numerous times. And it always hits me. It's unbelievable. I mean, here, one moment you're here, the next moment you're gone. You're not in that body. That's not you. But you think about it. This inanimate piece of flesh for 80, 90, 120 years, every single day, breathing 15,000 times a day without ever plugging in, recharging, uh, it just keeps on going. How? The first prayer that a Jew says every single day. Thank you, God, that you breathed life into me. And we use the word nishama for soul, not nefesh. Breath. I'm looking for a relationship to God, says the Rebbe. Badir and hearts inside of you. And I'm saying in the literal sense, God is breathing into me. That's how I breathe. That's how I talk to you right now. That's how I function each and every day. And that's Judaism's program for security and self-confidence. If God chose to breathe life into me personally, God must know my name, and God must be writing my script.
just a couple of weeks ago in the Torah portion, it was called Masse, which means journeys. And uh, the Torah talks about the 42 journeys the Jewish people took throughout the desert, and it enumerates them, it lists them, they went here, they came here, they went here, they came here, all 42, and the commentaries all wonder, they struggle, why the detail of such a technicality? I mean, the, most of these stops are already lit, written earlier in Torah when they happened in real time, plus who cares, it's a list. For a book that's so precise and concise, 50 verses, 49 to be exact, are spent on this list of 40 stops. Understand the whole story of creation is 31 verses. The Ten Commandments, I believe, 14 verses. And yet, listing 42 stops in 49 verses, why? It's irrelevant. All the commentaries ask this question. Rashi, Maimonides, Nachmanides, they give different answers. The answer I share with you, which I find the most relevant and personal, is from the Baal Shem Tov. The Baal Shem Tov says the Torah is telling us these journeys because each one of us has these journeys. Every person that walks this earth, every Jew that walks this earth will have the 42 journeys from Exodus, leaving their mother's womb, overcoming the challenges of childhood, till they come to the promised land, living a fulfilled life, and into the other world. We all have it. Well, Shem Tov explains that each one of those stops, if you're a Kabbalist, someone can walk in and tell you exactly where each step of that in your life you had the various stops. One of the cities is called Miska, sweetness. We've had moments of sweetness. Mara, bitterness, because the water was bitter. We've had moments of bitterness. There's a city called Kivrot Tatava, where they bury those who were overindulgent and asked for the meat. We all go through that period in time where we think life's about just having more fun until we self-destruct. Question is only how much time we spend on each stop. But every one of us goes through those 42 stops. The Torah is not telling us history about the ancient Hebrews, but talking about you and me and telling us that each one of those stops is part of our book. It's part of our journey. Why is that so useful and helpful? Because as Torah is telling us, there are no regrets. There are, there's nothing that wasn't meant to happen. Each one of those stops that we've gone through is part of our book. God wrote your book. God wrote your 42 journeys. And dear friends, this is the secret of Jewish happiness and confidence. Move forward. The Rebbe told a colleague of mine who went into a private meeting and he had a list of regrets. He made some mistakes. We all make mistakes. And he expected the Rebbe to give him a tikkun for this mistake, do this, for this mistake, do that, and a whole list of fixer-uppers. And instead, the Rebbe looked at him and he said, my mission in life, the purpose of my soul on this earth is not about the past. It's about the present and the future. And what the Rebbe was really saying is not just be positive and look ahead. The Rebbe maintains that everything that's in the past was meant to be. I'm going to say this in a whisper and don't let it leave this room. The Rebbe even says that even the sins that we did by our own volition, once they've happened, they're somehow part of our journey to make us stronger and make us dig deeper, to reach a deeper relationship with God. Those 42 steps, they're in your book. To look back, what about those wasted years of a relationship that didn't amount to anything? What about the job that I wasted a dozen years on that wasn't anything? What about the, the ups and downs? Often a person who comes closer to Judaism, their 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s and beyond, looks back and says, what if? Says Torah, there's no what if. Each one of us has our journey. It's meant to be exactly the way it is. Each one of the steps are in your book. I point out to you something fascinating. The secret of these 42 steps of embracing my life, embracing everything about me, the good, the bad, by nature and nurture, the cards that I like about myself, those that I don't, just owning the package and loving it. The secret of the 42 steps is spelled out in a prayer that we say every day. We all know the best-selling book in the 2006 called The Secret, yes? Right? About happiness and positivity. Let me tell you the Jewish secret. There's one prayer in Judaism that we must say in a whisper, only one. What is it? Baruch Shem, correct? The Amidi say quietly, but it doesn't must be a whisper. It is a prayer that we whisper. Baruch Shem Kivold Machutoli Olam Ba'ed. By the way, it's not a biblical verse. It's something that Jacob told his children on his deathbed as the secret. It's the angel's secret. We don't say it loud because the angels are not supposed to know that we know it. It's superhuman. It's understanding that everything is predetermined, that God is with us in our lives as we make our mistakes and as we rise above them. 
and therefore it's in a whisper. Only Yom Kippur once a year we say it loudly. I point out to you that this verse, which is non-biblical, is inserted in two prayers. Which two prayers do we insert the Baruch Shem? Hello? Shema. And there's one more. Anybody? I'm going to tell you, some of you are going to say, oh, of course. Anna Bekoach. Anybody hear of it? Very mystical prayer. Here's what the two prayers have in common. 42 words. If there's 42 steps in our journey, and there's a Kabbalistic reason why 42, because there's seven godly emotions times six, the last one, we wait for the promised land, what have you, the royalty, the manifestation of life, it's another conversation. But there's 42 steps in my journey and your journey, and each one of us. And that's the secret to Jewish confidence and happiness. Not just a faith in a God, but a faith in a personal God who breathes into me each and every moment and who knows my story. Who tells me that there are zero mistakes in the past. I live today and I move on. And all of the past made me who I am. That prayer, that secret that's whispered, that prayer that spells out that God runs the world, unlike the Shema, which we close our eyes and we see that God is one in the heavens. No, we open our eyes and we say, blessed be God's kingdom forever, which really, doesn't just mean forever, but it means within time and space. God's truth is not just when you close your eyes, but open your eyes, see the good, bad, and the ugly. It's all God's hand. He's with me each and every step. That secret is inserted in two prayers. The Shema, the Ahav does 42 words, Anabakoach, 42 words, empowering us to take this message home. But what about the challenges? I love to tell my people, you know, you ever go to the gym and you walk in and the coach tells you, well, till now you had five pounds, now you're going up to seven and a half. And you're sitting there and you're clutching, oh my God, this is crazy. I ask you a question, does the coach love you or not love you? Are they making you do that? Of course, set of loves. We don't ask for big tests. I always like to say, God, don't test me. I'll fail. <laughs> but each of us is given the weights that we can handle. That's part of our 42 steps. A philanthropist for Israel was visiting an IDF training camp. And he noticed that the terrain was very bumpy. Hills, valleys, what have you. And he said, you know, I'm willing to write a check. We could even this out and make it nice and comfortable. He says, don't you get it? That's what it's all about. Again, we ask for small bumps. But those bumps that God gives us, that means that we can ride those waves. And the secret of Judaism, Baruch Shem God's manifestation, God's name, God's kingdom, that means his action. For the Kabbalists in the room, Malchut is the last of God's sefirot, God's behavioral impact is involved real time with us. And it's followed by the Viahafta with the 42 words. What do we say in the first line of the Yahafta? Love the Lord your God, and we evoke both names of God, Hashem and Elohim. The name of Hashem, which represents kindness and blessing. The name Elohim, which represents judgment and challenge. Once I say the Baruch Shem and I embrace that secret, the mission is to say, God, I love you, and I love everything about you. The blessings that you give me, and even the challenges. Ever think why God made it a mitzvah to love God? By the way, this is one of the greatest mitzvahs. I think Maimonides listed as like number two. Why does God need us to love God? And according to the uh, Hasidic thought, the whole prayer book is there so that when you get to the Shema, you should love God. Does God need love? Did he have like a hard childhood? What, what, what is it all about? Because God wants us to love ourselves. God wants us to embrace our journey. God wants us to embrace all the cards that we were given by nature, by nurture, by past, by things that happened to us, by things that we've done to ourselves, whatever. Own the package and love it. The real translation of love the Lord your God ultimately means love your own journey. Love Hashem and Elohim, the shining days and the challenging days. And it doesn't say love the Lord God. It says love the Lord your God. Understand that it's personalized. Close your eyes and embrace and say, God is your God. Embrace that journey. So when you come to the last line of the Shema, you know that every door that opens and closes in your life, some better than others, there's a mezuzah on that door and God is blessing that journey. May it be easy, 
But those journeys are all part of our destiny. This secret is spelled out in the Ten Commandments, which we're going to read tomorrow. What's the last of the Ten Commandments? Lo tachmo, don't covet. Don't be jealous in plain English. And I wonder about it, you know. It's, uh, it's a nice thing not to be jealous. It's a good character trait. It's healthy <laughs> for your heart rate. But Ten Commandments? Hello, this is the top ten. Faith in God, don't kill, don't steal, hello? Don't be jealous? I mean, it sounds like a nice thing, but why is it up there? And it's not just up there, it's the last one. Jewish literature believes that the last is the bottom line. The last is what it's all about. But in the context of this discussion, Hasidic literature says, don't be jealous of someone else. That's key to all 10. It's the bottom line. If I don't own my own cards and recognize that I'm exactly the way I ought to be, I'm doubting God's faith in me and in all of humanity and in my particular journey. Don't covet is equivalent to worshiping idols and all the other 10, which will bring to negativity and sin and stealing, confusion. The bottom line of all 10, low tach mode, be who you are. I met, I was at the Rebbe's gravesite some months back and it was a group of students from Boston University, BU being led by a Chabad rabbi, and he called me over, he says, say something to them as they go in. And I didn't have the time or thoughts, so I said, where are you guys from? They said, we're from BU. I said, there you go. You want the right message of Judaism? BU. <laughs> Manus Friedman loves to say that uh, you know, he's blessed with many children. So people say, I heard you have a lot of kids. He says, I only have one of each. That's the way God is with us. The Baal Shem Tov says that each of us is an only child. If you're a parent, you can have many children. We're blessed with 11 children. May they all be well. Each one is an only child, in a sense. How does the saying go? You're only as happy as your least happy child. You don't average them out and say, oh, okay, as an average, they're doing okay like the New York State Regents. You look at each one as the whole world, and if one is going through a real challenge, you're sick to your stomach. Almighty God, the Baal Shem Tov tells us, each of us is an only child. How can I have 20 million only children? It's God. There's only one of you. I tell people, when I say I tell people, I mean I tell myself, and people listen, hopefully. Why, when I try to be like you, there's two problems. It's human nature. You look around, oh, well, I'd love to be like him. I'd love to be like her. There's two problems that I want to be like you. Number one is, am I really good at being you? And number two, who's going to be me? This is Judaism, friends. I know it sounds like self-help. It is. Because ultimately, the real direction to inner confidence Regardless of what our child, regardless of the level of confidence, regardless of what month we happen to be born in, based on what the newspaper says is supposed to be in nature, real inner strength comes from the knowledge that I'm real. Be you. There's only one of me. My journey and everything about me is written in the book. It's in the Shema. It's in the Anabekoach. Some of you might know the Anabekoach is really hidden names of God. They're printed in the prayer book. You're not even supposed to recite them because they're so holy. You just View them with your eyes. God signed his name on every line of your 42 steps. There are no mistakes. Grab the past and run with it. And be you. You know the Chelemite. Yes, familiar with Chelem, yes? It's coming back. Like So this Chelemite... Matel from Chelm was on an all-night train back home. And he tells the conductor, do me a favor. I don't want to miss my stop. Make sure to wake me up when we get to Chelm. So in the middle of the night, the conductor wakes him up. As luck would have it, he's sharing a cabin with a Russian officer. So it's dark in the cabin. So by accident, instead of getting dressed in his own clothing, he puts on the other guy's clothing. And this Matel, the idiot, marches into Chelm. He all dressed up with the whole thing. Mr. Officer, people look at him, the fault la roche, you fell on your head, what's happening? He comes home, he gives one knock on the door. Yentel opens the door, Matala, you nuts? 
look at you. He says, what's wrong? He says, come in. He takes a look in the mirror. He says, oh, that idiot conductor. He woke up the wrong guy. That's what happens when I want to be you. Somebody wrote to the Rebbe. He was very upset in pain because one of his children went off the path of Judaism. Chabadnik. And in his note, he said, Rebbe, I don't understand what happened. I raised them all the same way. Why did this one go off? And what did the Rebbe say? That's your mistake. You raised them all the same. They're not all the same. Dear friends, the Rebbe is God's messenger on earth, our Moses of our generation. And the Rebbe is telling us the way God looks at each of us. Of course, we all have to try to follow the mitzvot, but it's personalized. Each of us does it with our own journey, with our own past, with our own future. There was a Hasidic musician who passed away a number of years ago. I knew him well by the name of Eli Lipsker. Some of you may have heard of him. Eli Lipsker grew up in a Chabad family. He's Ozayin Ogeshet. my own father, was a classmate of his. And this is 1960. He's learning, he's studying in 770, the Chabad yeshiva, right under the Rebbe's feet. Try to imagine, this is a bunch of Russian immigrants. All they know is the Talmud and the Tanya. But Eli Lipsker felt that he has a musical talent. So in his free time, he would go over the bridge to Juilliard. And the rabbis who run the yeshiva felt it was a shanda. Hasidic boy, Juilliard, music. Did you finish the Tanya already that you're going to learn music? But he somehow felt it's his calling. But they weren't happy about it. And they went into the Rebbe. There was a monthly meeting where all the leaders of the yeshiva, what have you, a whole committee would go in. This went on for many, many years. And they would give a report of the yeshiva. And they would go through the name of every yeshiva boy and of a yeshiva girl in the various schools, how they were doing in their progress. And they come to Lipsker and they say, and Lipsker, Juilliard, we don't know what to do about this. And they were expecting the Rebbe to get upset. Really, he's going to Juilliard. His Zayde was from Labavitch or something, or Rostov or Leningrad, and he's going to Juilliard. The Rebbe looked up at them, says, it's a good idea, but how is he paying for it? There's no way he can afford it. He's a poor family. You guys are responsible to fund it. <laughs> I point out to you, Ali Lipsker lived a whole long life as a Hasidic Jew. He had Hasidic class every Saturday morning in his home. He played music in front of the Rebbe, all our weddings, etc. But the Rebbe said, I'm not raising them all the same. Another great story. I grew up in Crown Heights, and a neighbor down the block, his name was Pini Andrusier. Some of you may have heard of him. He's beloved in Chabad circles among shluchim, simply as Pini. My people are smiling because they've heard the Pini story. And um, here's Pini's story. Pini was in my class from first grade. Smart kid, so he kept up with the material, but he was in his own track, his own drumbeat. You know, we grew up in Crown Heights. He was into sports, he'd show up wearing all green because the Jets were playing something important. And the Rebbe who spoke Yiddish, was he had no clue. And we were having fun. Pinny made it happen. Pinny got me through school. <laughs> so he wasn't so interested in the study of the grades. Again, he, was, he happened to have a bright head, so he still does, God bless him. So he did fine, but he, he didn't show that his whole world was the yeshiva and he loved sports. I would venture to say that he saw the inside of Madison Square Garden and the home that uh, Ruth built uh, many more times than the average Chabad kid growing up on Crown Street. And then um, Penny went on to study in a Chabad yeshiva in Miami Beach, Florida. He's 21 years old, whatever he is, he's in Miami Beach, and he's not going to miss a game with the Dolphins, but he From what I understand, of course, by now, he's an inspired chassid in his own style, albeit. So he shows up for the game. He's got a tefillin booth. He's got a Jewish hot dogs, whatever it is. But he, he's following the game and etc. Pinny decided one day a crazy idea, which has now become commonplace. The Rebbe likes public menorahs. Let's light a menorah in Miami Dolphin Stadium. Now, today, that's not a big deal. It's all over the place. We lit one with the Islanders. It's all over. 
But then it was a first timer. It was a Michigan idea. Hello? Penny said, are you kidding? There's 40,000 people here. Let's do it. And he arranged it. And he got permission from Rabbi Korf, as the head of Chabad of Florida, and etc. But he had to do one more thing before the Sunday game. The Rebbe had a custom <clears throat> that on Saturday during the Fabringen, when the Rebbe would talk four or five hours with interruptions of songs in between, etc., right? Some of you are familiar. At the end of the Rebbe's public Fabringen public gathering, which would last three or four or five hours, people were invited to come up and bring a bottle of vodka, lechayim up, which they would hand into the Rebbe's secretariat on Friday afternoon in honor of an occasion. And the occasion would usually be, we just finished studying the Talmud, we just finished studying the Tanya, we have a weekly Torah class in our Chabadas, we just built a new Chabad Yeshiva, we built a new building, whatever. And the Rebbe would instruct them, at that time during the Rebbe's Fabringen, to walk up, and they were handed, the, the Rebbe would pour them from the bottle, and they would say l'chaim to the Rebbe, the Rebbe would hand them the bottle, and their job was now to announce the event to all those that are gathered. They have to say, we'd like to announce in Yiddish, bargain banacht, mitzvah banacht, tomorrow morning, tomorrow night, there's a party, there's a rambam. It was all holy stuff. They finished a book, they started a book, and everybody's invited. And the Rebbe insisted they should invite the Rebbe too. The language that he used was nisi derenu, which was a reference to the previous Rebbe. Translate as you like. But that's how the announcement went. Tomorrow night, we're finishing the book of Rambam at 5 o'clock. Everyone's invited, including the Rebbe. Penny flies to New York that Friday before the Sunday game. Hello? He walks into the Rebbe secretary's office with a bottle of vodka. The secretary says, what's this about? He says, the Miami Dolphins versus, I don't know, the Broncos or something. One o'clock. Menorah. The secretary says, uh-uh. Penny says, what do you mean, uh-uh? This is a beautiful thing. We're lighting a menorah, 50,000 Jews. Uh-uh. Back and forth. Finally, Penny says, look, if you don't take it from me, I'm just going to walk up there. And the secretary already heard about Penny. It wasn't an empty threat. So he said, I'm taking it, but if this don't work out, because if the Rebbe doesn't like something, it's not a, it doesn't make Hasidim feel good. So he said, okay, we all knew about this. The word got out, and we waited for that minute. We couldn't concentrate on the rest of the Fabringen. We were waiting for Penny. And they all brought up their vodkas. I think he was like the last one. Or so. He walks up there. The Rebbe pours him, of course, respect and everything. He loves the Rebbe as much as any Hasid and any Jew. And he makes the announcement. Tomorrow, he says in his Yiddish, not a, Morgan, one o'clock, kickoff time. Miami Dolphins were lighting the menorah, everybody's invited and the Rebbe's invited too. <laughs> Friends, the Rebbe broke out with a smile like the sun came out. If you know a Rebbe, he doesn't smile involuntarily. It was a smile that the whole room just lit up. Unbelievable. But it's Penny, it's Meshigah. He's going to so many sports games. Come on, it's a shtus, it's a waste of time. Fast forward a couple of years, he gets married. I see Penny on the street, how you doing? What are you planning to do? You're going to go and open a Chabad house and be a shliach? He says, Shalom Moshe. I'm not shliach material, I'm Penny. I'll make some money and I'll support you guys. He opened up a business. It was called Ness Paper, Miracle. Started selling paper goods all over Brooklyn and was successful within two, three years, doing really well to the point that he wanted to buy a house in Crown Heights. He writes a letter to the Rebbe and he says, we have four choices, a house here, a house here, two family here, four family here. What do I do? Those were his choices. Three or four choices of a house. The Rebbe did something that I don't think he ever did. Certainly not since the 60s. This is like 1991. And the Rebbe's answer is, if your wife agrees, I think you should be a shliach. Again, for the Rebbe to instruct someone to go is something that happened in the 40s, in the 50s, 60s, even then, the Rebbe wanted it to come from you. We're talking 1991. Shlichus was in vogue. If you're not asking for it, they're not begging you to go. I don't think it ever happened again, some say one more time, in those three decades 
where the Rebbe should say to someone, I want to buy this house, this house, this house, and this house. Rebbe, those are the four choices. No, a fifth choice. If your wife agrees, I suggest you go become my shliach. Pinny told the story this year at the convention. There wasn't a dry eye in the room. And he said, thank you. By the way, Nest Paper goes on. His next brother took it. And it's quite successful. I'm sure he's supporting Penny. But he got up there and he said, thank you, Rebbe, for plucking me out of the business that he described in other terms that I'm not going to repeat. And I'm out there on the front lines, highly successful. You can imagine a guy like that. I share with you the story for the point of my talk today. Each one of us has our journeys. We're not raised all the same. There's only one of each. Everything about us is part of the package. That doesn't mean the Rebbe approved with every single thing that Penny did or that we do. But whatever happened in the past, including our own choices, embrace it. It now made you who you are. And now when you take the next step forward to do the right thing as a Yid, you're doing it with all of that personalization, which makes it special. Some of you might know that the, uh, one of the greatest question marks in the Torah is the repetition of the offerings of the 12 leaders of the, of the tribes of Israel upon the inauguration of the temple, the portion of Nasai. Somebody, yes, some of us, a bunch of us. Raise your hands, I want you to stretch a little. Okay, way to go. So the, uh, the, um, the temple is inaugurated and each day one of the 12 tribes brought a list of offerings to celebrate the temple. Lo and behold, wouldn't you know, they all brought the exact same offerings. And yet the Torah repeats it 12 times over. It's a huge question mark that commentary grapples. Again, the Torah is so precise. We learn the laws of Shabbat from a hint, from a juxtaposition of Shabbos with the, with the temple. From hints, from one word, from one letter, we learn entire laws. And yet, over and over, I think it's seven or eight verses times 12. It's cut and paste. It should have just said, here's what they brought, A, B, C, D, E. They all did it. And again, the most satisfying or relevant answer to me is this. The Medrash says that while they all brought the exact same offerings, they didn't compare notes. They brought it on their own, and they brought it each for their own reason. So while they were exactly the same offerings, they were totally different. Translate that to you and I. We all wear the same tefillin, we all light the same Shabbat candles, we all say the same prayers, we all read the same Torah portion, etc., etc. and that's the way Judaism works. But guess what? There's only one Shabbat candles that's yours that will never be lit and never was lit anywhere in the world in history. There's only one tefillin that's yours. There's only one mezuzah that's on your home. And when you do that tefillin or Shabbat candle, all of history waits for that moment. And when I say you, what do I mean? Everything about you, all 42 steps, all the cards in your deck, every last one, including the moments in life that you wish you could erase from your hard drive. We don't understand God's mysteries. All of those are what make you, you, and me, me. When I step forward and bring that offering, that mitzvah, as me. I say this often to my people in my shul at the age of 40, 50, 60, 70, start getting involved. Somebody became Shoma Shabbos, an elderly gentleman, and he says, Shabbos is so great. Oh, I wish I would have done it earlier. I said, no. It wouldn't have been you. It wouldn't have been so glorious. It wouldn't be so special. God has plenty of Shabbos. Guy's name is Arnie. He wants Arnie's Shabbos. I mentioned 12 step. So, as a kid who went through our school years ago, grew up in an Orthodox home, but was a troublemaker from day one. His name is Ari. And uh, every day he was kicked out, he'd be in the principal's office, he'd come to my office because I was a nicer guy than the principal. We became like buddies. Kid was in seventh grade, smoking in the backyard. I mean, getting into trouble all around, shopping across the street without money in his pocket, stuff like that. I was Ari. His family, a beautiful from family, but whatever Ari's issues that he had, and he was, he was a mess. I later heard that Ari fell into drugs for many years. I would say every two or three years I get a phone call from Ari. I'd stop whatever I'm doing, because I was 
one of the few friends in the world that he had, certainly one of the few rabbi friends. Ari, how you doing? Hey, rabbi, you know, and it was always a mess. And I worried, whatever. I haven't heard from him for a number of years. Last year, Rosh Hashanah, between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, I get a phone call. They tell me it's Ari. Now, you need to know, Rabbi, between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, it's the busiest time of the year. But of course, Ari's on the phone. Ari, how you doing? So, this is Rabbi. He sounds like a different man. He sounds sober as hell. Rabbi, it's Ari. I'm coming in town tonight for a wedding. I'll be in town for, for, for 24 hours. I'd like to see you. I said, Ari, that's great. I'd love to see you. Great. Yom Kippur is Wednesday. Come in on Thursday. I want to talk. Let's go out to lunch. No, Rabbi, I'm, I'm, I'm here for a day. I got to see you. All right? And trust me, it was difficult. He marches into my office the next day. He's got tattoos on both arms, top to bottom. When I look in his eyes, I see a person sharp, alive, sober, strong, focused. He sits down across the table. No laughs, no small talk. He says, Robert, here's the deal. Of course, I gave him a big hug. Here's the deal. I went through about uh, eight years of addiction. To support my addiction, I had to steal, grab whatever I can grab. Because I know my way around this building, I showed up here once. And I took uh, X amount of cash, he throws a wad of cash on the table. And I took a Mont Blanc pen that was sitting in your drawer. Here it is. I couldn't believe it. People in my shul know I keep that Mont Blanc pen, I kiss it like a mezuzah. It's a symbol, it's a symbol of the human spirit, it's a symbol of the unstoppable neshama, the divinity within, in fact, every human being. What happened, Ari? He says, yeah, and I'm out there and I'm clean for three years and I have an operation which is actually making money and I'm helping people I'll get sober, but he's, it's a business operation, he's successful, he's not a practicing Jew at the moment, but very spiritual and focused and he does stop into the Chabad once in a while to a friend of mine. It was unbelievable conversation. I use it as the the main focus of my Yom Kippur sermon, and people will remember that. The Ari story, the Mont Blanc pen. And then I said, Ari, let's late tefillin. And this is a kid who grew up from, he had his own tefillin, and he, he knew how to do the thing, but he hadn't done it in a while. And he said, Rabbi, is it okay to wear tefillin on my tattoos? Isn't it a Shanda? And I said to him, I said, are you kidding? I said, I said you know, when I wrapped tefillin, on a Jew who has his numbers tattooed on his arm. It is said that one of the great Rebbe's visited Israel after the war, and when he left Israel, people said, what do we do if we need a Rebbe to give us a bracha? We need someone to give a kvittel in the languages, to give a note for a blessing. How could you leave us? Where do we go for a bracha? And that Rebbe famously said, go into any shul and see a Yid wrapping the tefillin on his number, he can give you a bracha. I said, Ari, your tattoos are a sign of a survivor, an internal Hitler, an internal demon that could have destroyed you, that was taking you on the path to Auschwitz. And here you are, strong. Are you kidding? Wrapped it filling on your tattoo, and do me a favor, give me a blessing. Why do I tell this story, and why is it so important? Because I believe that, you know, most of us use 20% of our potential on a good day. I look around, I talk to my colleagues, the powerful people in our communities are people often in recovery. Or people who have been dealt the real tragedies of life, loss of a child, God forbid, or what have you. Those bombshells that God gives the gigantic souls. And I wonder, we're an illness, and I wonder why is it? And obviously the answer is because they're forced to find that inner strength. But guess what, ladies and gentlemen, if you're sitting here, you're part of the 85% as I am, that says, hey, how come I don't always feel good about me? How come I don't always feel I can do what I can do? We're all a little bit of addicts. We all have that sense of self-doubt and negativity. That's the way we're wired up. And the way to get over it is to connect to the higher power and to find the reflection within us that each of us have, like Ari found. We have a, a, a soul that can move a mountain, a soul that knows that there's only one of us, a soul that knows there are no mistakes. A soul that knows there's nothing weak about us. It's God giving us the weights to lift. 
It's the rough terrain to train us to become who we need to be and who we really are. Let's take a lesson from Ari. Let's reach out to the higher power. And I'm not just saying, if you're sitting here, obviously you're, you're a person of faith and what have you. But to start each day with a conversation to get to love, not the Lord God, but the Lord your God. And not just Hashem, but Elohim. To get to know God, who wrote your story and my story, who loves everything about you, and you are exactly the way you ought to be. We need to start our day with that. We need to dig in and find the little Ari. If they can do it, trust me, I hold up that pen on a tough day, and the shliach has a tough days, and I, I literally kiss it like a mezuzah, and I say, this is the power, you can do it. There's a piece of Hashem, how does eighth day say? You got a little Moses in you, you know the song? So I suggest, we're not wired up to start a day without prayer. It's just not meant to be, it's not part of the program. You know, some people can't start the day without breakfast. For me, it's the coffee. Actually, it's uh, usually an average of four cups. My people say, Rabbi, every day is Passover for you. You got the four cups. <laughs> We're not wired up to start a day without prayer. And what prayer means, talk to your local Chabad rabbi or whatever. For some people, it's the entire prayer. For some people, it's three times a day. For some people, it's just the Shema. For the men, Shema and the Tefillin. The morning blessings, thank you, God, that I can breathe and walk and talk. Whatever, the measure of it is your call, and as you grow which is the Rebbe's motto, keep on growing. We must start each day with real personal prayer. And I want to tell you what I mean. The entire message that we talked about for the past 48 minutes, about finding that unique me and embracing it and loving it and knowing that it has its purpose, and knowing that God directs those 42 steps, the secret of the Baruch Shem Kevol Machutol Leolam embedded in the 42 words of Shema, the 42 words of Ana Bekoach. What does Ana Bekoach mean? Give me the Koach, please. You find it in prayer, and here's how. You know, intelligent people are often bored by prayer. Rabbi, I said it yesterday, I got it. I said it for a week, I know the whole thing. You know, nobody reads a book over and over, even the Torah, we study it every year. It's a year later, and we study more commentary. Every day, the same book. You walk into a room for 40 minutes and you read 25 pages that you did yesterday and tomorrow. Why are we repeating ourselves? Dear friends, I want to suggest, let's have a paradigm shift. And let's recognize that prayer is not some kind of obligation of reading a book. Prayer is personal conversation with God. Prayer is therapy. How often do you go to the therapist and say the same thing you said yesterday and the day before? <laughs> it's therapy, but Rabbi, what do you mean therapy? He's talking about King David and Moses and Pharaoh. Read each page carefully. You'll find yourself on the page. If not every page, every second page. You breathe the breath of life into me, not into humanity. You open the eyes of the blind, me, I can see. King David says, I thank you, God, for taking me out of the abyss. Personal abyss, whatever's going on in your life. Some days you're singing Mizmor Toda, the Thanksgiving. Thank you, not what King David did, but me. Exodus from Egypt, it's not about the historical Egypt only. My own Egypt, Meitzarim, my own little Pharaoh that's knocking on the door that has to wake up the little Moses in me. Splitting of the sea, what does splitting of the sea mean? The ability to see beyond the surface and find deeper potential. Thank you, God, for splitting the sea for me, even as my own demons and Pharaoh and negativity or employer or neighbor or competition are pursuing me. You split the sea. Every page. God, you count the stars, you know their names. Is that what it's about? He wants you to know if I know the name of every star, you know how many there are? There's a couple of them. He knows your name. That's what it is. When we personalize prayer, dear friends, it becomes who we are, and we're able to live out what the Rebbe said to that Yid. Remember, we can't start a day without a coffee, for some of us. We can't start a day without prayer, even if it's five or 10 minutes. And for the guys, you need it to fill in. That's the phone number to dial in. And that, that prayer, which is personal, says, as the Rebbe said to that Yid, Avu is God. Where is God? And let's translate it, where is God in Hasidic parlance? It doesn't mean, where is the boss? 
Where is the creator who I ought to listen to or else? Where is my energy? Where is my source of life? Where is my mission? Where is the creator who is really the existence of all existences? Where do I find them? Badir and Hartson. He's your heartbeat. He's your soul. He's the writer of your script. I'm going to conclude one of my favorite anecdotes. There's a kid in our community by the name of Gabe, and he was having his bar mitzvah. And our custom is before the bar mitzvah, they meet with the rabbi and we discuss the plans. And also I like to encourage them to take on a mitzvah so that it's not just a party and we move on. I'm dealing mostly with public school children. So Gabe is in my office with his parents, etc. And we're talking about the mitzvah that he'll take on. And uh, I happen to know that Gabe says this Shema every day, twice a day, because about five years prior, when the kid was eight, he was sitting in my shul in Yom Kippur, and we have 800 people sitting in the room. And you give a big speech, and everyone says, wow, it was great, but you know that tomorrow there's like eight people in those same seats. And you're frustrated. You're thinking, how do I move people to the next step? And you tell everyone, make a resolution. I love to say, count the change before you leave, right? In the supermarket, the sign says, count your change before you leave. It's a good thing to do when you leave a retreat on Sunday. Count your change, the impact. But I'm feeling frustrated. How many of these, all these wonderful people who are all feeling good about themselves as Jews will really continue doing something? So off the cuff, it wasn't in my plan. I said, I want to ask everyone to take on a tiny resolution to say the six words of the Shema, morning and night with your eyes covered. Hundreds of people started doing it. I heard this from many people over the years. At least a daily good morning and a daily good night to God. So Gabe started doing it. So I said, Gabe, now you become becoming bar mitzvah. I want you to do tefillin with it. And in order to engage him, I said, do you know why we cover our eyes and we say the Shema? And I was sure this 12 and a half year old public school kid will say, I don't know. And I'll give him my little spiel. To my surprise, he says, Rabbi, I know why. I said, you do? You weren't supposed to. <laughs> why? He says, I close my eyes and I cover it with my right hand to realize that there's nothing more important to me than God and there's nothing more important to God than me. I stood up from my chair. I'm going to repeat it. There's nothing more important to me than God, nothing more important to God than me. I walked around the desk and gave the kid a hug. This is in the days where you could still get away with doing that. Friends, this is Judaism. There's nothing more important to, than God. That's not a Jewish thing. Any religion will tell you God's the greatest thing and you better get on his good side. Nothing more important. The contribution of Judaism to the world, the personal God. Guess what? There's equally and more importantly, more relevantly, nothing more important to God than you. There's only one of you. And you're an only child because each child is an only child. Live out your life. Embrace it. Love the Lord your God. And let make each day count. Thank you so much. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.